0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect
2: the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill Two. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, it is time for a listener mail episode. We've got Carney the Mailbot... Here with his uh, the stack of mail for us, absolutely bursting at the seams from this mailbag.
3: That's right, we we had a, a lot of great listener feedback in the past month uh, relating to episodes involving everything from from Talos, the man of bronze, to Baby Jesus of Montculi, the Winter People. Uh, you know, we've just, we've had some really strong episodes that have come out and, and people have, uh, have provided some strong
0: commentary on them. I know we always say this, but we get really, really awesome listener mail. I, I love what you people out there send us and please always keep it coming. It, it is true that we can't always get to all of it or we can never get to all of it in mm-hmm. our listener mail episodes. There's just, too much to uh, to read it all. So please, if you send us a great message and we don't get to it in this episode, please don't take that as a slight. There's just a, a not enough time in the world to read it all. But uh, we hope we can give you a smattering of some of our favorites here. Uh,
3: if you write into us, uh, you will reach our eyeballs. Uh, we just don't always have time to
0: respond directly or certainly to read it all on the show. I'd say the easiest way to get our attention is to put Robocop in the subject line.
3: <laughs> yeah, don't, don't be afraid to, to, uh, to just try and catch our attention that way, by all means. Uh, well, on that note, let's, uh, let's call forth the robot. Let's look at a little bit of listener mail. What do we
0: have up first here, Joe? Well, it seems that Carney is receiving a message from another solar system. Ooh. This first email is from Alice and it's called Oumuamua episode comment. And so Alice writes, I adore your show. Here is a note intended to help improve it. On the recent episode about our interstellar visitor, Oumuamua, that's about the interstellar asteroid that was recently detected just this fall, uh, she, she writes, you guys failed to note the more likely explanation for why it would be shaped similarly to a human-designed ship for interstellar travel. Now we were talking about that's one reason people had been speculating, oh maybe it's some kind of alien probe or alien spaceship is that it was much longer than it was wide, it mm-hmm. had this kind of cigar shape, which is an odd shape for objects naturally found in the solar system, right? You you don't usually see asteroids shaped like that. Alice writes If a cigar shape is really more likely to avoid collisions in space then assuming that a number of randomly shaped objects were ejected from a distant solar system, the ones that are not cigar shaped would be more likely to encounter collisions and not make it to our solar system. Keep up the good work, Alice. I I think that's an interesting point. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I I do think it is the point that was brought up in some of the materials we were looking at. I I feel like this is probably a case where maybe – We or or probably I did not hit it strongly enough when we were talking about it, Mm -hmm. that uh, the the shape would indicate something that was designed to – uh, survive an interstellar voyage, and this would be one of the factors uh, involved there.
0: It sort of uh, establishes a cosmic natural selection kind of thing, right? The, mm-hmm. Or, or at least a type of anthropic principle. Yeah. The, the types of objects we'd be most likely to have entering our solar system are the ones that are most likely to make it here, mm-hmm. and the ones that are not likely to make it here, we're not likely to see. Right. That's uh, if
3: you're if you're going with the idea that it's not a spaceship. Which right. I believe that's still the the that's still the prognosis is that it's not a spaceship. I I
0: hate to bust the wonder. It's probably not a spaceship. But
3: but but l- luckily we we were able to to air the episode. That was our concern. That, right. That after we recorded it, they would say, "Actually, it is a spaceship."
0: Everybody, um, the world has changed. And then we'd have to go re-record with an "It was aliens" bent. Yeah, well, but we've never nice... had to do that yet. <laughs> it's never come up.
3: I I, am, I can only imagine we would have to be very pro alien in the uh, the follow up though, because right. I I wouldn't want them intercepting this podcast and then thinking, "Oh, well, those are the." Those are the guys we
0: need to take out first. I, for one, welcome our cigar-shaped overlords. Exactly. Okay. well, thank you very much, Alice. And our next email comes from Levi, and it concerns the Talos episode about the ancient Greek automaton. This is one of two
3: different cases on the podcast where we essentially gave the listeners homework Mm -hmm. and said, here – uh,
0: someone else figure out the math of this particular scenario. Now, this concerns the fact that in the episode, the ancient belief about Talos, or at least what was said in the myths about him, was that he would have to go around the coast of Crete three times in a day.
3: Right. And so we were wondering, well, assuming he's marching the whole time, because he is a, an, an automaton, he mm-hmm. can do that, uh, then how fast is he going? And maybe even, what does that reveal about his size? Because we had some discussions about is, is he man-sized, or is he a giant, like we see in the Ray Harryhausen uh, version of Talos.
0: Right. So Levi contacts us with an email called the Talos equation. He says, Hey, guys, I am in the middle of the Talos episode,
3: and I had to pause to do some quick math after the comment about wanting someone to figure out how fast, how large Talos would have to be to circle Crete three times a day. This sort of trivial endeavor is precisely my cup of tea. So here it goes. A rough estimate of the total shore length of Crete finds the distance to be approximately 460 miles, and three laps around the island would make the total daily distance 1380 miles. If we assume an 8-hour day, sunrise to sunset, we can calculate that Talos would be moving at about 172 miles per hour. The description <laughs> <Okay>. of <laughs> It's pretty fast. Yeah. But hey, Automaton, uh, with the the ichor of the gods flowing through its vein, so You know, anything's possible. That's right. It's like the super unleaded. So uh, Levi continues, quote, the description of Talos given in the Argonautica says that he strode around the island as opposed to running or sprinting. Hmm. And if we assume a stride to mean a normal walking pace, we can say that a stride is about 80 steps per minute. Interesting uh, variation here. Given the rate of speed of 172 miles per hour, we convert our units to feet per minute. 15,153.60 15,153.60 feet per minute. Next, we calculate our distance per step. 15,153.6 divided by 80 average steps per minute gives us a figure of 189.42 feet per step. That's a long stride. If we assume that the average person's stride, distance per step, is equal to approximately half their height, we can calculate Tallis's total height to be 378.84 feet. So this would definitely uh, be supporting the idea that Talos is not a human
0: sized uh, uh, creation, but a true giant. Now, this kind of goes counter to what most of the ancient sources would seem to assume, which is that Talos was made of bronze, but he was more like the Tin Man than like the Ray Harryhausen giant Talos. He was a human sized bronze creature.
3: Now, Levi continues, quote, now that this mathematical and geeky itch is sufficiently scratched, I can enjoy the rest of the episode. Love the show. Keep up the suburb work. Regards, Levi. Did the whole thing with it on pause? Yeah. I like that. I like that initiative. Yeah. Pause the episode, do some math homework, and send us in the answers.
0: Now, we got a slightly different calculation from our listener EJ, right? Yeah.
3: uh, EJ wrote in on the discussion module. That's our Facebook group, an Mm -hmm. excellent way to interact not only with us, but with other listeners uh, to the show. Mm -hmm. EJ says, quote, I use the distance measuring feature on Google Maps to ballpark the coastline of Crete to 620 miles. 997.7 kilometers. Talos would have to go about 77.5 miles per hour, 124.7 kilometers per hour to do three laps of the island a day. Also, I couldn't help thinking about Skyrim during the episode, and he included a picture from a particular meme that's popular, but I believe, uh, if I remember correctly from my Skyrim playing days, Talos is a god in the world of Skyrim, and there's a particular NPC that goes around preaching uh, about
0: Talos. I think he's in the the first uh major town you encounter. So I'm unfamiliar with Talos or uh, with Skyrim in general. Is Talos bronze in Skyrim? Ah, uh, you know, I don't I don't remember. There are some cool bronze automatons in it because the like
3: extinct dwarves of the world have mm-hmm. just left behind their ruins and they have these these uh these these bronze automatons that walk around and kill things that stumble into their ancient dungeons. Oh, no. So, uh, you know, there's a certain uh, familiarity with uh, the myth. I imagine, uh, with the Skyrim creators.
0: Now, there are some differences in these calculations, not only with with the differences in estimation numbers, but also with the number of hours that Talos would be expected to walk per day. I think Levi had it going at eight hours per day, whereas I think EJ was assuming just constant patrol of the shores. I don't know if patrolling at night would make as much sense because would you be able to see people coming anyway
3: well it seems like that would be a great time to uh send in a ship of invaders so i don't know interesting you know what? jason didn't quite think of that one did he <laughs> <laughs> but but i don't know there's so many uh, additional navigational questions come into play uh yeah I, i'm not sure on that perhaps our listeners have further thoughts on this whole talus conundrum now, as I said, this was not the only bit of homework that we handed out to our listeners. You also handed out a little, a uh, little bit of listener math homework in regards to our uh, baby homunculi Jesus
0: episode. Right. So in that episode, we were discussing the old preformation theory of human reproduction, and this was a theory several hundred years ago, and and before that, that that human beings and human embryos. Basically, they didn't have the idea that the sperm and the egg cell would combine and fuse together and mix their chromosomes to create a new recombined human embryo cell. Instead, they had the idea that either the sperm cell or the egg cell was a fully formed human being, just very tiny, and that somehow the, uh, the act of sex would cause that fully formed human being to start growing within the uterus. Now, I wondered under this theory how many generations of humans within humans could be stored, scaled down all the way. Mm -hmm. So, like, because you imagine if every – human sperm cell is a fully formed human then that tiny fully formed human has all future generations formed to sperm cell size within itself so it has to be proportionally smaller
3: the Russian nesting dolls can only go down so far before they run into like hard physical limits
0: yeah you'd eventually get to something like plank length which Mm -hmm. is you know a, a length of space in physics that no longer makes any physical difference to our calculations so we asked this question and And our listener, Madison, supplied an awesome answer. Madison wrote, I'm a big fan of your podcast. And in the episode, Baby Jesus and the Homunculus, you posed the calculation on how many generations could exist if the theory of a fully formed human existed in the sperm. How far back could this go before meeting the Planck length? Well, let's find out. The average newborn human male length is about 50 centimeters and the size of the average sperm cell head is about 5.1 micrometers or microns. This means the ratio of newborn length, uh, of newborn length to sperm length is and she does the calculation. It's about 98,000. But she says we should just round it to 100,000 because it's easier or a factor of 1E5. So uh, she says from here, it is fairly straightforward. For that first generation, a human that is the length of a sperm or five micrometers would have a second generation of sperm that is 5E negative 11 or 50. 50- Picometers, about the length of one helium atom. From there, you could only progress six generations until you reached 5e negative 36 meters or a Planck length or beyond a Planck length, essentially, because the Planck length is 1.6e negative 35 meters. Then Madison writes, but what about the oocyte? Human oocytes are much larger than sperm at 100 micrometers in diameter. Using the same logic, you could only reach eight or nine generations before passing the Planck length. Not only does this pose size limitations, but eight generations is really only 200 years or so. Hmm. This was a fun thought experiment. I really enjoy your podcast and I've been listening to them for over a year now. I've just finished my undergraduate in molecular and cellular biology at the University of Connecticut and am preparing to continue for a PhD in genetics this fall. I currently do research in computational genomics, specifically with pine trees and their massive and complex genomes. At about 10 times the size of the human genome, pine trees like the loblolly pine, are some of the largest genomes sequenced to date. My work is essentially building a 23 me for these trees so we can breed traits like disease resistance more effectively. That's huh. fascinating. Yeah, it is. For a future podcast idea, it might be interesting to talk about genomes and their sizes and complexity. What are the biggest genomes and why are they so big? Why is it so hard to sequence the wheat genome? How are genomes assembled computationally, and why is it all so difficult? So many people ask me about that, and how humans fit into all of it. Another idea for a podcast could be how uh, could be about ancestry testing, or how 23andMe trait profiles work and don't work. I'm still trying to educate my parents on how their test results could be slightly different from their siblings. Thank you for all the wonderful content. Uh, Thank you so much, Madison. This is a great email and full of great ideas for future episodes. I, I think genome size and complexity is a really fascinating area. I'd just been reading something about uh, research that came out this year comparing the genome sizes of different birds and mammals and what genome size might actually have to do with flight.
3: Huh, Interesting. Yeah, I would love to, uh, to dive into that. I don't, I don't think we've, we've covered anything quite along those lines before. All right, on that note, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we will consider some more listener mails uh, concerning some recent topics. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray.
3: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. So this next bit of listener mail comes to us from listener Stephen titled Paradox or Semantic Illusion. Mm. So already we're intrigued. Hi, Robert and Joe. While working, I often find it helpful to distract my mind a little. For this reason, I listen to lots of podcasts. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is by far my favorite. I make my living as a custom mannequin sculptor using clay for some projects
0: and digital sculpting programs like ZBrush for others. I have never heard of that job before, but that is so interesting. Yeah. I I should have thought before, how do mannequins get made?
3: Yeah, I mean, you. I guess you tend to think that you just have like a mass-produced, and certainly there are some mass-produced mannequins, but yeah. you do see unique mannequins in certain stores, and they have to have an origin story.
0: Yeah, totally.
3: This is the guy. This is the modern uh, Daedalus uh, okay. creating his, uh, his, his his myrmidons. <laughs> he continues, the production deadline I have to meet can be brutal. Many times when I have needed to put in crazy hours to get things done, stuff to blow your mind may, has made the process less painful than it otherwise would have been. Thank you. Your recent podcasts about the present moment and bicameralism have the lichen and rust-coated cogs of my mind grinding into motion again. (laughs) I was unfamiliar with Julian Jayne's work prior to hearing your podcast on bicameralism, but I have read and appreciated Joseph Campbell and Eckhart Tolle's ideas for many years. I'm reaching out to you because I'm trying to reconcile Campbell, Tolle, and Jayne's perspectives on metaphors. Metaphors. All right. So he continues... Joseph Campbell told Bill Moyers during the Power of Myth interview, quote, most people in the West take metaphors in religion literally, mistaking the, the denotation with the connotation. Hmm. Eckhart Tolle has written, quote, as soon as something is perceived, it is named, interpreted, compared with something else, liked, disliked, or called good or bad by the phantom self, the ego. They are imprisoned in thought forms, in object consciousness. You do not awaken spiritually until the compulsive and unconscious naming ceases or at least become aware of it and thus observe it as it happens. Mm. And that's from page 240 in A New Earth. Uh, Anyway, uh, Stephen continues. I'm still reading the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind, but so far what I'm hearing Jane say is that metaphors make non-bicameral consciousness possible, and that when people were bicameral, they heard voices in their heads telling them what to do, making most of their actions unconscious. Please assume momentarily for the sake of reckless of a reckless thought experiment that Jane's theory about the role of metaphor in consciousness is correct. With this temporary assumption in effect, I feel like there is something glaring me in the face when these three perspectives are laid out on the same page. The trouble is I can't quite put my finger on it. I'm sharing my quandary with you in the hope that you may see what I'm missing and point it out to me. Would there be a chicken-egg paradox surrounding consciousness where, on the one hand, it cannot emerge without the use of metaphors, names, concepts, or labels, but on the other, it is all but blighted out by the gross oversimplification uh, which speech, language, and metaphor inevitably produce? When I consider the possibility that many violent acts which have contributed to cycles of unending suffering, potentially exasperated by epigenetic magnification could have been the outgrowth of an unconscious bicameral haze which did not dissipate until very recent human history, it makes my head spin when I reconsider Joseph Campbell's insights about denotation being mistaken with connotation in the realm of metaphor. The irony would be that even after bicameral dominance faded, the misunderstanding of metaphors by non-bicameral minds would have been waiting in the wings like a purveyor of hell on wheels, continuing the mad momentum with which bicameralism might have given birth to. What bothers me is that these ideas seem to simultaneously support and contradict one another. On a lighter note, I have included some mannequin prototype samples that I sculpted in clay at work about a year ago while listening to many Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcasts. I'm gradually making time to do my own work again when I'm not sculpting mannequins, and I may play with ideas about consciousness inspired by the pers- perspectives Campbell, Tole, and James have me considering. You guys are on a roll, and my inspirational batteries are beginning to recharge. Please
0: keep the podcast coming. Thank you, Steve. Well, that's really interesting stuff, Steve. I mean, w- one thing I would say is that <sighs> – if you're asking about how to reconcile these different views, I think to some degree the views, I mean you could modify them and reinterpret them generally, but I think they're sort of incompatible, right? if you're saying that the toles idea is that metaphors kind of um imprison our thoughts and limit our consciousness because we're making comparisons and and using words to limit experience mm-hmm. and then on the other hand you've got jane saying that um that metaphors make consciousness possible though i think it's not just non-bicameral consciousness i think he would say that metaphors make both bicameralism and consciousness possible and that you couldn't have I- either one without metaphors metaphors are sort of his road out of the stimulus response machine architecture. Uh, now, of course, that's all just like if you're playing with the Julian Jaynes hypothesis. We're not assuming that this is actually a true explanation of where consciousness came from. But uh, but yeah, if, if you do sort of entertain it as a hypothesis, I think it's not quite compatible with the idea that metaphors are these shackles that limit our experience, right? Yeah, yeah,
3: I I agree. I, now I'm thinking back on Eckhart Tolle's writings, uh, and I, I seem to recall the the details he's referring to. Where, where basically Tolle is making a an argument for being able to observe the world and not depend upon metaphors, not depend upon language uh, to make sense of it. You know, sort of like being able to stare. At a flower, stare at a rose, say, mm-hmm. and experience it for what it is without bringing in you know, the name of the rose, ironically, right. uh, or, or the various meanings that we have heaped
0: upon it to render it uh, just completely powerless. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I don't know the answer to whether it's even possible for a person with a language-based mind to have non-languaged consciousness. I mean – I. I've never had that experience myself that I can think of where, like, I just lose analytic language and words and words and structure and grammar all fade away. And it's just raw experience of like, uh, I don't know, light and sound without any names or comparisons.
3: I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, I've had the experience of playing with Legos uh, more recently with my son mm-hmm. and I still have the numbers to go by, you know, how many of those little circles are on a block uh, or what color they are, what basic length they are. Is it a big piece or a little piece? But I don't – I at least do not have names for those blocks. And I have often found myself thinking about that as I'm building something with my son that I'm – I don't have names for the thing, the components I'm using to build something with a name. Mm-hmm. um but again, it's not quite the same because I still have the number system to go off. I still off of. I still have the color, and I still have the the final shape to consider. Uh, I don't know if Stephen or other uh, artists out there that listen to the show have any insight on this as well. Creating something out of things
0: that perhaps
3: don't have names.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm still trying to think how exactly Joseph Campbell's idea fits into all this. I um I. I don't know that I agree with him, but I do think that that is a very – possible concept. I mean, something I've brought up before on the show is you don't always know how to read ancient myths. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when he says Joseph Campbell's idea is that modern Western audiences look at a myth and they try to take it literally. They try to take it as denotation rather than connotation, when really what the myth is, is that it's a bunch of symbolic resonances and meanings rather than like a literal story about something that physically happened.
3: Well, as I probably said before, I think that's one of the great things about myths, though, is that you you can take it out mm-hmm. and you can you can put it on the shelf and you can you can turn it this way. You can turn it that way. You can change your perspective and all the different ways of looking at it uh, can be rewarding in slightly different ways. So look at it as as a you know fundamental truth. This is a true story, a magical thing that happened. Look at it as literature. Uh, look at it as a a story created to explain something, etc. Uh, I would refer listeners back to our myth episode as we roll through. All the various ways you can explain a myth. But uh, I I find that it's examining each of those perspectives is rewarding. And it's not as much trying to figure out the definite explanation for what
0: it is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I wonder sometimes how much of this confusion is born out of just pure equivocation on the uses of the word truth. Yeah. Uh, Like when somebody would say, for example, that their holy book is true. You could take that in a, in multiple different ways and you could have very different reactions to it based on what they mean by the word true, right? Like you could use that to mean every story told in it literally physically happened in the past. Or you could use it to mean there are statements in it that give true structure and meaning to my life. Or you could take that to mean that when I read it, something feels right about it.
3: Yeah, I – I find myself again with my son having to explain a lot of this stuff because he'll, you know, he has the he has it down like if something is true, obviously, and mm-hmm. then if something is completely made up. But I'm really trying to define the idea of myth for him as being this middle ground mm-hmm. that a story can be true but not factual. Like it's right. uh, the way I try to explain it is well, this is not a, a story of something that actually happened, but is it a story that means a lot to people mm-hmm. and has truth in it? Uh, But you shouldn't get caught up on whether or not there was an actual Garden of Eden or if dragons are real, et cetera. But that's not to just dismiss them to the realm of Ninja Turtles.
0: Right. And yeah, in in fact, people don't have all that much trouble with this when they think about modern literature, I think. I mean, people will usually be able to acknowledge that a work of fiction written 10 years ago is, of course, not – literally factual it doesn't describe things that happened in the world and yet it's full of truth uh for some reason it becomes more difficult to sort out these meanings of truth when it comes to like myths and and the things that structure our lives like re- religions and stuff yeah, like that yeah and, and
3: i think a lot of that comes ends up depending upon uh, an inaccurate view of, of how ancient peoples considered their beliefs mm-hmm. to to just look at it as, oh, well, this was something that a more primitive people believed in. They thought this was an absolute truth. And if I'm looking at it in a different way, then I'm I'm looking at it with modern eyes and it's not quite the same thing. But again, I, I feel like on this show, when we discuss myths, we tend to drive home the point that, um, that it's more complicated than that.
0: One last thing on that idea. I often wonder if – People in ancient cultures who, you know, had you know, Greek myths and Babylonian myths and all that—if there was sort of a similar diversity of orientation toward the myth, then that you would have. Uh, among people in various religions today, so like if you explore Christianity in the United States, there will be lots of people who believe in a literal six-day creation, mm-hmm. and then a lot of people who believe in the truth of Christianity, but they don't believe that the stories like are literally factual descriptions of physical realities. And I wonder if you'd find the same thing in ancient cultures. Actually, you get some people who are insisting on kind of literal interpretations of mythical stories, and other people who are who are drawing from the well of myth to provide structure and meaning.
3: Yeah, I mean, a great deal
0: of that is uh, is lost. All
3: right, well, we'll have to move on.
0: Obviously, we could talk about this all day. But I
3: also want to say, Steve, thanks for sending in those images of your mannequin work. Uh, These were really cool. they kind of – we we can't share them with everybody because they're they're kind of confidential. But uh, they have a very uh, kind of sci-fi meets classical
0: uh, look to them, you know? Right. Yeah, the polymers of ancient Greece.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Alright, well what do we have next, uh, from Carney, the mailbot here? Well, Carney is giving us a message from Julia, and it's about our Winter People episode. Oh. So Julia says, Hi Robert, hi Joe. Ila Kazla. So this, uh, email has a lot of, uh, Kwakwakiwak words in it that I'm going to do my absolute best to try to pronounce, but I, I apologize if I fail at, uh, pronouncing them right. But. You're you a braver man than I, Joe. Okay, so it starts, uh, Ila Kazla, which means thank you for your shout-out to the Kwakwakiwuk people in your Winter People podcast. I listen to your podcast while out delivering beer in and around Vancouver for How Sound Brewing. I was delighted and surprised when I heard you mention the Kwakwakiwuk peoples. I am part Zawa de Enu, a tribe that falls when, uh, within the Kwakwala-speaking languages groups. The winter ceremonies are a big part of our culture. I have witnessed the Hamatsa being tamed in the Gyutzi, which is the big house. I appreciated your understanding that this is more than just a performance. It's a way to transcend reality and enter into the spiritual. When we go onto the floor to dance in the big house, we turn around in a circle. This is a representation of us turning into the spirit world. Our ancestors were theatrical. You mentioned choreography in our dances. This did happen. I have heard stories of those that knew they were being bitten by the Hamatsa, putting a piece of meat on their arms so that when the Hamasa bites them, it will look as though they have bitten into the flesh and torn some off. These performances would often scare the Indian agents that would come to our ceremonies. I've read that back in the day, the Ni Noxola, who are the wise people, would choose who would be initiated as the Hamatsa. They would then fake that person's death in front of the community in a very convincing way. This person would then have to secretly leave the village and go through their initiation process, only to return during the winter ceremony. Unfortunately, colonialism has continued to degrade our cultural connections to the spirit world and to our ceremonies. Residential schools, genocide, disease, the potlatch ban, the 60s scoop, stealing our regalia, forced sterilization of indigenous women, systemic racism have all contributed to this degradation. We no longer have these ceremonies in the winter. We no longer have winter and summer names. We no longer have the traditional foods that supported us through the winter months. This is starting to shift, though. We are relearning our old ways and adapting them to our new ways. We're starting to restore traditional governance, of which the winter ceremonies contribute greatly to. We're fighting for our wild foods, and we're currently on the front lines in a fight against open-net fish farms in our traditional territories. The story about the cannibal at the north end of the world has been told to me differently. Walanuk, the cannibal at the north end of the world, is one of the four brothers in the version I know. They are the sons of Tsikame, the cedar man, who is the original ancestor of the Kwakwaka'wakw. Other histories have different versions, though, depending on who tells them and what their reason for sharing the story is. I enjoyed listening to the version you had learned. Just interesting to note that the Zunukwa, the wild woman of the woods, is oftentimes associated with the Sasquatch. Ah. As a young indigenous woman who has only recently started to reconnect with her culture, it was super cool to come across a podcast that spoke to her roots. Cheers. And this is from Julia ixtam giligami or abalone shell woman well that was a real treat that's Uh, awesome
3: i mean we uh we 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 kind of gambled in that episode and said well we probably have some listeners out there who have some familiarity with this culture or or parts of this
0: culture and uh and lo and behold we we got to hear from one this was really cool so thank you so much for getting in touch julia
3: all right on that note we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're
0: going to roll through a few more of these wonderful listener mails that we've received
2: And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: All right, we're back. All right, well, here's uh, here's one from our listener, uh, Milan. Milan writes in, uh, in response to our Talos episode, uh, they say, hi, I have just one detail you didn't get particularly right. The word robot is a noun made by famous writer uh, Kapek from the Czech v- verb robota, which means corve. Uh, Sincerely, your listener, Milan. Uh, now, I, yeah, I have to add here, indeed, robot does stem from the Czech word robota, which means forced labor. And uh, I was reading about this in Brewer's Dictionary of Fa- a Phrase and Fable, always a, a cool uh, source to have in play on uh, on these uh, these things. Uh-huh. Uh, the name comes uh, indeed from the me- mechanical creatures in Carl Capex' play R.U.R. or Rosum's Universal Robots, and a 1923 production in London introduced it to the English speaking world, and it was uh, used in reference to flying bombs of the Second World War as well. Uh, so uh, it, it is. It is kind of interesting to to trace the the roots of this word, like how a Czech word becomes popular among English speakers and then you know throughout the world. I also have to say that I I'd, I'd previously read that the term comes from a, a Czech word robotnik, uh, which uh, interestingly enough, the villain in the Sonic the Hedgehog game yep, is Doctor Evo Eggman Robotnik. Robotnik, yeah. yeah. Which I'd, I'd forgotten about. He's the, the big mustachioed guy in the various mechanical um, death machines. I always
0: wondered – so he's, he's like a sphere with legs and a mustache. Yeah, he's like an Eggman. Yeah. Why – is he a robot or does he just make robots? Is he human? <laughs> is I, he a sentient egg? How deeply uh, dare we uh,
3: dive into the mythos of Sonic the Hedgehog? I'm not sure. <laughs> but I do have fond memories of playing those games. I never beat them, but I, I you know, it was always, always fun to zip the
0: uh, critters around in the first couple of levels before it became too difficult. Yeah, fast moving. Okay. We've got another short email from our listener, Joshua, who's, who writes in with the subject line. This is a good attention getter. Werewolves spotted in Vietnam. Ooh. Joshua writes, hey, guys, long time listener and huge fan here. Just wanted to thank you for the introduction to the game Werewolf. I'm currently staying in a hostel in the tiny village of Ta Van in Vietnam, and it was a great icebreaker with all the other travelers as the coals burned low. Sadly, the villagers always triumphed, but there's always tomorrow night. Man, that's different than our game where the werewolves won most of the time. Yeah. Probably has to do with different numbers of players, right? We were like at the bare minimum of villagers to actually have a game. But uh, but glad to hear your villagers could put up a fighting chance. Uh, Joshua continues, the work you all do is amazing. Thanks to everyone who makes this podcast possible. You've been faithful companions on many long airplane and bus rides as well as just nights at home. You're valued and appreciated. Really keep up the good work. Thank you so much for saying so, Joshua. That is is so nice to hear and, and really glad to hear we're helping you make friends uh, on your travels.
3: All right. Here's another one. Uh, this one comes to us from Jake titled Big Fans. Hi, guys. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Started listening when I heard my favorite author, R. Scott Baker, would be on and have been enjoying it ever since. <laughs> Funny story. I listened to your episode about various mind-controlling parasites with my eight-year-old daughter, Molly. Mm. She really enjoyed it. And even though it freaked her out a little, she later asked to listen to more with me. So next we listened to the Talos episode, which I was really enjoying until you started to talk about how Talos would immolate people with a hug and a huge grin. Oh, no. Ha! I loved it, but it was too much for Molly and she wanted a new one and said they really have a way of making everything dark. They do indeed, Molly. Oh, you know, I feel like we don't go out of our way to do that, but... Oh, well, yeah, we'll discuss. Okay. Uh, so Jake continues. So I picked one that sounded like a nice, easy one for The Winter People, part one. Everything was going well until you started talking about Santa Claus, and I could tell trouble was coming by the excitement in your voice as you said, Have you heard the original stories about St. Nicholas? Uh oh, I thought they only get that excited when they're about to say something (laughs) horrifying. And sure enough, you dove right into the evil innkeeper who chops up children and pickles their body parts. But it had a happy ending.
0: They get resurrected. Well, oh, yeah.
3: Suffice to say, I was asked to stop it in no uncertain terms. Oh, no. Anyway, it cracked me up that she pegged you guys as being drawn to the dark side of things. Definitely true. Definitely part of why I enjoy your show so much. Keep it up. Uh, I'll be listening, but I can't say the same for Molly. Regards, Jake.
0: Well, I'm sorry to have scared her <laughs> off. I, I hope maybe she'll come back and enjoy the few in, the show in the future when she's older, maybe. Well, but Jake's listening because it's dark. He likes the darkness.
3: Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I guess we do try to keep it fairly light uh you know some topics allow us to do that better than others uh Uh, some topics kind of floor us with the dark content you know we don't we don't always set out to make a a, a, an episode that reveals the, the, you know, the dark, hidden nature of humanity, but sometimes it's hiding there, just uh, ready to jump at you and drag you down to the
0: ground. Well, I'd say in both of these cases, we didn't make up these stories, folks. <laughs> the, these are very old myths that have been around longer than us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say on the Santa Claus
3: issue, at the, the around the same time we we're recording this, I was, I wrote uh, an article for howstuffworks.com mm-hmm. about the the kind of, delightful history and cultural usage of Santa Claus. So uh, there is that lighter side to me uh, <laughs> regarding uh, the jolly old elf, even if it wasn't present uh, in that episode. Maybe I was letting my uh, my holiday um, fatigue shine through a little bit. I don't know. Anyway, thanks for writing in, Jake. It was great to hear from you.
0: Okay, we are receiving one here from our listener, Mary, who writes us about a recent Vault episode we featured. Uh, or Wait, did we feature this from the Vault? I don't think we did, did we? This is just an old episode. Wait, what's the episode? The episode is The Science of Coincidence.
3: Oh, no, it's just a coincidence. We haven't
0: uh, republished that one yet. <laughs> this was my first episode of Stuff to blow Your Mind, oh. or, or at least the first one I recorded. Maybe not the first one that aired, but mm-hmm. uh, th- this still, I think, remains one of my favorites, we, where we talked about – uh, what's really going on when you think synchronicity is happening in the world? Right, yes. And so anyway, Mary writes in about this episode. She says, quote, I've been slowly catching up on podcasts and I just finished listening to the science of coincidence. When you began talking about the scientist around whom machines always seem to break down, I believe that's Wolfgang Pauli. I think. She continues, I was reminded of a fun coincidence that happened to me in college. In one of my physics labs, one of my partners was a professional juggler. This particular day, we were doing the experiment to prove the speed and acceleration at which different objects fall. Basically, we were testing gravity. Everyone else in the lab was getting perfect results on every drop they tested. We, on the other hand, could not get a consistent result to save our lives. Our tapes showed gaps and bunches that should absolutely not be occurring. Parenthetical, we were using equipment that sent electric pulses out as things fell, theoretically marking a special sort of tape that was stretched up to the height of the device, I cannot remember its name. After the third or fourth erroneous result, we began joking about how our juggler was messing with our results. After 20 minutes without a clean fall, we threw him out of the lab. (laughs) As soon as he stepped out the door, we got all of our tapes. All of our falls went perfectly. It became an incredibly easy experiment at that point. Once we had all the data we had to have, we let our juggler back in. Once again, our tapes started showing odd gaps and bunches. When we wrote up our conclusions, in addition to the ones that uh, the professor expected, our group added, based on our observations, we have concluded that objects do not fall according to the accepted laws of gravity when in the presence of a professional juggler. (laughs) We included all of our tapes marking the ones where he left the room. The professor had been present for the whole lab, so he was in on the joke. We got an A on that one. Just a fun coincidence I thought I'd share. Never found an Explanation for it, other than jugglers are weird. Huh. I love stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I wonder if now what you you could go two ways with the explanation. There, you could say that the correlation between the juggler's presence and the failure of the experiments was just actually a coincidence. There was no uh, no no causation there, or you could say that the juggler was doing something that was messing up your recording equipment or somehow otherwise interfering with the experiment. Hmm.
3: Or maybe it was simply meant to be. This was a, a divine <laughs> juggler whose yeah. uh, presence was written in the stars.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think about uh, having I, – I don't know exactly how the setup worked. So it could be things like having magnetic elements on one's clothing or mm-hmm. in one's backpack or, you know, stuff like that. But, yeah, it's hard to know for sure. Interesting.
3: Well, uh, I have one here from James, and I have to say this is this may be the the first time, but uh, I'm excited to read a, a a listener mail about pronunciation.
0: Oh boy! Because
3: this one's actually uh, this one's enlightening, uh, and actually ties in really nicely with the episode. They're responding to our our episode on the monstrosity cuteness scale. The idea that something that is that is cute or it's monstrous this is all a slider essentially. This is all a spectrum. Uh, and that is why things transition from one to the other so easily. Mm-hmm. So James writes in and says, hi there, guys. Really love your work. The recent episode about Machine God kind of did my head in. Great episode. I just wanted to mention something from the monstrosity cuteness scale episode. I didn't mention this earlier because I didn't want to be petty, and I really expected a lot of people to mention it, and I didn't want to pile on. However, I have a small pronunciation note between the Japanese words kawaii and Kawaii. Uh, that's a, an a uh, versus with an uh, an o. Uh, okay. In terms of the you know the sound, a number of times when meaning to say kawaii, meaning cute, instead you said kawaii, which means scary. Hmm. Both are very common words, but very different in meaning. And considering the episode was about things which are kawaii over time turning kawaii it really uh threw me for a loop a few times still a really excellent episode though thanks again for all
0: your work now i certainly never meant to pronounce the word kawaii ever in the episode but i'm going to maybe chalk this up to our tennessee accents under which these vowel sounds get kind of both get conflated to the uh sound right mm-hmm. Kau- if we're talking fast and being east tennesseeers Kowai and kawaii kind of both become Kowai.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think that may be part of it, uh, but I think it is it is interesting that uh, it, that any mispronunciations or um, or perceived mispronunciations were so th- thematically um, <laughs> appropriate in this mm-hmm. case. You know, the the idea that these two uh, two words, essentially words for cuteness and monstrosity uh could be so closely uh, uh aligned that could resemble each other so 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 nicely
0: well i didn't even know that before we got this email but that makes me wonder if we're having uh lexical determinism here in the culture as if the you know the the phonetic similarity of these words actually leads to a linking of the concepts in the cultural consciousness
3: well, well maybe i mean it would make sense within ja- japanese culture but- right but then you have you have examples of this taking place outside of uh, Japanese culture as well so right. i don't know but it's wonderful food for thought and uh, and thus uh, my excitement to read it
0: OK, next. Very uh, simple one that I think we should read for totally self-serving reasons. Uh, Benjamin writes to say thank you. He, he says, thank you, guys, for a great podcast. My deepest appreciation all the way from Norway. Wondering how I can donate some money for you to buy some snacks or drinks. I might just end up doing it. Have a wonderful New Year's, Benjamin.
3: And then you sent him our Swiss bank account
0: details, right? Uh, Exactly. I sent him our Cheddar bank account. (laughs) No, uh, we currently do not have any way for you to send us money directly and that's how it should be. You know, the show's free to you. You don't need to pay us for it. You just listen. Yeah, Uh, there's
3: no official merchandise right now so you can't do that either.
0: uh, Maybe in the future you can. In the future. But
3: right now you can't, can't, that's not an option for supporting the show.
0: But this is a great place for us to let you know there are some free things you can do to support the show. If you want to, just a few suggestions. As always, give us a positive rating and review on the platforms where you listen to us, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Uh, a thoughtful review where you talk about what you like about the show is going to be more helpful than just some stars floating in the void without words. Uh, if you're in a position to do business with our advertisers, use our promo codes when you mm. do it. And uh, if in any way, if it's possible for you to do it, let them know that you heard about them through us. uh, Here's a big one. Share and interact positively with our posts on social media. A lot of people probably aren't aware that social media works this way. But if you're like us and you've got a page Mm -hmm. with a bunch of followers – and you post something, it doesn't go to all your followers. Uh, The social media platforms, they kind of want to keep you hostage. So they will show your followers your posts at a a rate determined by how much you pay them to do it. And if you don't want to pay them anything, you're not going to be reaching most of your followers unless people start commenting on and sharing those posts. So that's a really easy way to help us reach more people and help the show just – do positive, good quality engagement, like things, share things, and so forth. Yeah,
3: you can collectively reach more people than than we can with our
0: account. Totally. Even more important than social media is word of mouth. Just if you know somebody who you think would like our show, tell them about it.
3: Yeah, as you're walking down the street, just start screaming the name of the show, right? Uh, and, and hopefully people will listen to you. You know, write it on the on the, the walls of bathroom stalls with sharpies. No, don't do that. But, uh, but you know, just generally spread the word. If 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 we share some sort of cool idea, uh, you know, share that cool idea with, uh, with with other people. Bust it out at cocktail parties, and uh, and and then maybe uh, you know give a recommendation on top of that.
0: Yeah. Also, if you've got a platform of your own, whether that's a podcast, blog, video series, whatever you might be doing, uh, and you think your followers might dig us, let them know about us. That helps, too.
3: Yeah. How? So Stuff to Blow Your Mind themed birthday parties. I'm just spitballing at this point. But, uh yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do uh, that, that it doesn't cost a dime that actually helps us out immensely.
0: How about Stuff to Blow Your Mind themed retirement parties? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can use the basically the same cake design, too. You could form stuff-to-blow-your-mind-themed countries.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Maybe in the virtual realm, you know.
0: Okay, so, yeah, that's about it for now. Can't send us any money, but there are are things you can do if you like the show and you want to give us a boost.
3: All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Duncan. Duncan writes in and says, Hi there, I was just listening to the Dangerous Foods 3 episode, and the question was asked whether octopi actually specifically evolved to use choking as a defense mechanism. Although I can't de- definitively answer this, I was reminded of an episode of Blue Planet 2. Uh, this, of course, is the great uh, one of the great Attenborough uh, nature documentaries, in-, in which an octopus was attacked by a shark. As the shark attempted to eat the octopus, it forced its tentacles into the shark's throat and out through the shark's gills, stopping it from breathing. This forced the shark to let go of the octopus, which escaped and survived the encounter. This strongly suggests to me that the answer is yes. Well worth, worth watching the show if you haven't already.
0: Hmm. So this makes me think of in the old cartoons when you would see like a giant shark or something like that trying to eat Bugs Bunny or whatever uh-huh. other crafty cartoon hero. They would like put their feet on both sides of its mouth and like, you know, spread <laughs> spread their feet apart to like – wedge there so that they couldn't be eaten mm-hmm. yeah, kind of yeah. like that
3: yeah I think so basically the, the, the same the same ideas in play this of course is not to be confused with the scene in Lucio Fulci's zombie in which a, <laughs> an aquatic zombie battles um, a shark briefly Right, though that yeah. is one of the great scenes uh, in cinematic history.
0: You've got my gears turning. Next October, there will definitely be a science of Fulci episode. <laughs> it's like, what? What are the thermodynamics of human melting?
3: It's mostly going to be a bunch of medical journal articles about eye stabbing. I think, and, <laughs> and, and, and the uh, the actual science behind that.
0: I love the way we laugh. Oh ho oh, oh, ho! Eye stabbing. <laughs> Okay, we recently uh, did a Vault episode version of our old episode on Aphantasia, the blindness of the mind's eye. Yeah. And our listener Lucy wrote in to get in touch about that. As always, we love to hear from people who have direct experience with this. And so Lucy wrote the following. Hey guys, I've just listened to the episode on Aphantasia and parts of it made me laugh. I'm 25 and only last year I came across this term and realized that other people see things when they close their eyes and try to imagine it. When I was in primary school and they would sometimes get us to close our eyes and imagine a scene described to us, I genuinely thought that the teachers were just trying to kill some time. (laughs) You know, Lucy, that might have been that might have been the case, even though the other children did have a uh, vivid mind's eye. But going on. It doesn't matter how hard I try to see the image, it never appears. And the harder I try, the more frustrated I get and the more frustrated the further away I feel from the possibility of seeing something. It's like you know what you're supposed to be seeing but without actually physically seeing it. As for hallucinations, I can confirm that it is possible for people with aphantasia to experience visual hallucinations. I have experienced a couple of psychotic episodes which included visual hallucinations, Looking back on them, it was like I was misseeing seeing what was in front of me. So, for example, I would think any small inconsistencies in the walls were buttons to press. Huh. It had been snowing, and there was grit on the ground, but on top of the snow, it looked to me like blood and dents in the snow, and I thought there were reindeer footprints. When you were talking about doing things you would have to visualize to do, I struggled with this a bit. I do agility with my dog, and at training, if we're told to do a sequence before doing it, everyone else will picture what to do in their heads. But for me, I need to physically do something to remember it. So I will stand and look at the section we're working on and will move my arms slightly, the one I would use to direct my dog at that point, for me to remember to go and do it. Interestingly enough, I'm always the one at class that remembers the courses the easiest great podcast and i really enjoyed listening to it lucy oh very interesting thanks so much lucy yeah that's interesting that um fantasia could contribute to different learning styles when you when you need to like memorize a pattern of movements or something you can't visualize yourself doing it i
3: ha- i have to throw in that i think every month or two i quiz my son again to try and determine if he can make uh uh, uh visual uh images in his mind mm-hmm. i'll say so if you close your eyes and think about a hedgehog can you see a hedgehog and uh, he'll tell me yes or no and it, it's it's kind of you don't want to lead them too much on these questions right uh, but I, i'm continually curious uh, about how he how about his perceptions of his own inner world can he see one I'm pretty sure he can't. Yeah. Yeah. But early on when I was asking about it, I think he didn't understand what I was talking about. And I got answers that were more negative.
0: Well, I mean, again, the it's kind of odd trying to describe the phenomenon here, because when I imagine a visual image, I'm not seeing it the way I see stuff with my eyes. Uh, So it's kind of odd to try to define what that kind of seeing is it's not the same as seeing with the eyes it's not seeing in the same place as seeing with the eyes it's more like having an awareness of the visual qualities of a concept without having that concept in front of you
3: yeah you know when i when i've talked to my my son about consciousness uh, he has described what he calls his turning place
0: so, You've told me this before. Yeah, this is
3: great. He has the. He says that he he can remember anything. He just has to like bring the memory out into his turning place, and then he he remembers it, uh, which is which is wonderful. I mean, that's he's basically describing consciousness, the Cartesian theater. Yeah. Uh, speaking of consciousness, I want to read a, a quick uh, listener mail here from Chris. Chris writes in and says, "I'm sure someone has already sent this to you." But in case not, I figured to pass it along. The New York Public Library recently reposted David Bowie's list of his 100 favorite books. And right up there among some classics and avant-garde British fiction is Julian Jayne's Origin of Consciousness at number 21. I wonder if Bowie sensed or channeled a voice in his head through his various personas. And he provides the link uh, and uh, says, in any case, thanks for making the podcast. It's always super interesting. And I appreciate the hour long dives into curiosity for curiosity's sake amid the exhausting news cycle these days. Keep up the good work.
0: I, I took a look at this list for a rock star. Bowie has a very intellectual book list. Yeah.
3: Well, it, I really one would expect that. Right. I mean, yeah. but he's Bowie. He's, yeah. he's not just any rock star. And uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of the bicameral Bowie. I'm going to have to. Listen to a bunch of Bowie songs with uh, the bicameral mind in mind okay. and, uh, and and see what uh, what I find. I'll probably find something because recently I've been – I was driving in the car and I turned on a, 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 like an oldie station and they mm-hmm. played uh, Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. Yeah. And for a brief second like idly listening to the lyrics, I'm like, oh, man, this is totally about bicameralism. This is this is what this song is about. And <laughs> then I had a little more time to process and I'm like, no, no, that's just because I'm thinking about it all the time and I, and then I listen to comfortably Numb.
0: Well, now that I'm thinking about it, hold on a second. Is Ziggy Stardust a bicameral being? Uh, maybe
3: maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna have to bust out the, the greatest hits and find out.
0: Okay, one last one from Carney. I think this is the perfect listener mail to end on. This is from our listener Liz subject line. Chopping Mall. (laughs) Liz says, Hi, y'all. So I just started listening to your episode called Talos, the Bronze Automaton, and stopped in my tracks when I heard the words Chopping Mall. (laughs) As a teenager, there was an amazing video store a few blocks away that literally had everything. It was like the Library of Congress of movies. The horror section was formidable, and my best friend and I like to rent bad horror movies. This is a good way to form an adult personality. (laughs) Uh, she continues, We happened upon Chopping Mall and watched it many times over the years. I still think about it and actually found a stream and watched it a few years ago. It is so amazing, and I'm glad to hear it has not been forgotten and is still appreciated in all of its awesome terribleness. Hopefully some listeners will take it upon themselves to check it out. Cheers, Liz. Obviously uh if you are a if you are a child listening right now you should not check out Chopping Mall no. but if you're an adult who loves bad horror movies from the 80s ooh it's a good one.
3: Yeah indeed I watched it for the first time this this past year and mm-hmm. we discussed it on uh, Trailer Talk I believe. Yeah. And uh yeah it's tremendous tremendously fun uh, 80s killer robot movie.
0: Yeah and of course it comes up in Talos because Talos is the legendary progenitor of the killer robots in Chopping Mall. Exactly course.
3: yeah. But uh, yeah, this is just a tremendous film, and I totally um, uh, agree with her on the the wonders of the of the video store, both as a child and even as an adult. I, I dropped by our local video store, Videodrome, which is just down the street from the House of Works offices, just the other day to rent myself some Creature from the Black Lagoon and uh, and of course the cinematic classic uh, Leviathan.
0: Ooh, Leviathan! <laughs> Terrible movie, but great cast and great poster. Yeah, yeah. Peter Weller, RoboCop. He's the main dude in Leviathan. You can see him wearing a hat that nobody's ever worn before. <laughs> the moment he put it on and walked on set, uh, it's got Hector Elizondo, I think. It's got uh, Daniel Stern. It's got Amanda Pays. It's got Richard Crenna, doesn't it?
3: I think you're right. Also, did you name the uh, the woman with the uh, the haunting eyes?
0: Is that not Amanda Pays?
3: No, no. Uh, this is. Uh... She's been in a number of genre uh, films. I believe she was in uh, "They Live" as well.
0: Oh, Meg Foster. Yes, Meg Foster. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. She does have icy eyes.
3: Yes, R- really, the the greatest icy eyes of all time.
0: So. Oh, and it's got Ernie Hudson. Oh, Ernie Hudson. Who can forget Ernie Hudson? I mean, it, it is just it's killer, and it's one of those 1989 underwater movies.
3: Yes, which I'm still. That's a question I have for for listeners out there. Here's your homework. Figure out for us why there are so many underwater peril, underwater monster, uh, encounter movies that came out in 89. Cause you have Leviathan, The Abyss, Deep Star 6, Lords of the Deep. Yeah. All of it seeming to converge on 89. And I don't, I, I for one don't know if it's it just because The Abyss was coming out and all these other lower budget uh, films sort of hatched on like Lampreys. Or was there something else going on in the culture that that made everyone make an underwater peril movie
0: at, at that moment? I'd love to know. The people are dying to find out. Exactly. What a fantastic mailbag. I just love hearing from you all out there.
3: Yeah, yeah. So keep them coming. Uh, we're going to try and do these more regularly uh, these days, like maybe once a month, maybe once every couple of months. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, so there you have it. Again, not all the listener uh, mails that we've uh, received, but just some of the ones that uh, we thought were uh, were pretty juicy and uh, needed to be shared with other listeners. The rest of you can continue to write in. Write in in response to other listeners, or hey, go on to uh, Facebook, find our Facebook group, the discussion module, and interact with the other fans directly. Cut us out entirely. Uh, we're just the middlemen. Uh, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes, as well as links out to those various social media accounts like facebook like twitter like, like instagram
0: thanks as always to our excellent producers alex williams and tari harrison and if you want to get in touch with us directly and maybe be featured on a future listener mail episode you can email us at blow